Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast with me, your host, Jeffrey Hart, a.k.a. Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Every fortnight, join me as I talk to designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello and welcome to episode 74. This week, it's a geeky building science one about mass. So Ez pulled me up on some comments I made on the effect of mass in a building. And so we arranged to have a chat all about it. And this is that chat. Before we get into it, there's a couple of courses you might be interested in. So two former podcast guests are running some workshops up on the Falklands estate in Fife, uh, which involves timber hut building and earth and fibre in huts and homes. So that is Becky Little and Daniel Postma. And this this is all about the, the Scottish hutting initiative, specifically how we can be incorporating earth and fibre into those huts. The uh, little bit of blurb is... This workshop is ideal for anybody interested in the benefits of earth building and looking to find out which materials and techniques may suit their building and site, financial situation and personal preferences. Whether you don't know where to start or are unsure about earth building as a material or want to explore sustainable options to add to your existing skill set, this is the workshop for you. Uh, so loads of links to uh, the courses being offered uh, in the show notes. Uh, there's some videos of the last time they ran the courses and details of Hutfest, uh, which is at the end of the week, 22nd of May, 2022. Do check that out if you are in the Scotland area. Uh, second workshop is Spoon Carving with me. So on the 7th of May, 2022 in Bristol. So come along and learn how to turn a fresh timber log into a beautiful and functional spoon. Uh, We will spend the day using just hand tools, an axe, a saw and a set of knives to create your spoons. It's a wonderful hobby to have and a fantastic gateway into the world of green woodworking. Again, 
link in the show notes. So speaking of spoons, this week I spent a glorious afternoon in the sunshine crafting some eating spoons for the Patreon supporters. So thank you to everyone who is patiently waiting for your spoons. They are coming. The house is nearly done. I'll do a little update on that and then I can get all of the remaining ones out of the way. On the Patreon front, uh, this week a huge thank you goes to Jennifer Ford, who I had the pleasure of meeting at Future Build last month, Liam Williams, Robert Malley's, Malay's, and Sylvia Jones. You are all building sustainability heroes. Thank you so, so much for helping to pay me a little bit to produce this podcast. Really, it works out the equivalent to you, the supporter of buying me a cup of tea once a month. But to me, it all adds up and means that I can dedicate the time to producing this podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much for the support. I actually couldn't do it without you. Uh, A very quick tiny house update. Uh, I had an unscheduled month off uh, when I first of all put my back out. Then I spent some time in London at uh, the Future Build event, uh, talking about straw bale building and earth floors. When I was there, I caught COVID and I had to spend two weeks recovering. So I'm finally back at it on the what feels like the final push of the house. Uh, I've made some stairs. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be plumbing in the bath. And then on Wednesday, my solar arrives. So I will be all juiced up. It feels really pretty special to be uh, moving into real finishing details. I honestly can't wait to clear all of my tools out of here and just have it as a house. Mm-mm. But if you want to hear me chat more about tiny houses, uh, then I have recently been on two different podcasts. Uh, the House Planning Help, which is an excellent resource for anyone going down the self-build route. And then Tiny Sessions, which is all about people living tiny lives. So yeah, links in the show notes to those podcasts. Do check them out if you're interested in the tiny house. And I do promise that when I finish this house, I will do an episode on it on this podcast. But for now, have a listen and do let me know what you think. Okay, so this episode, uh, Ez describes his interests in his Twitter bio as high energy mountain sports, low energy building design, runner, climber, ski mountaineer, building physicist, and certified passive house designer. Also, electric vehicle driver. Uh, This episode is quite heavy on the building science side, and it mainly centers around an article that Ez wrote and then sent to me when he heard me talk about the role of mass in another episode. I do recommend that you have a read of that article. The link is right at the top of the show notes. Um, it might be good to to back up what you hear with uh, with reading it. it. Took me a couple of reads to uh, to get my head around it. Um, right, that's it for me. I am back at the end. Enjoy the episode. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm always a bit nervous about doing that sort of thing because, I'm, you know, I'm never sure that I'm right, and that's a good state of mind to be in. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm opening discussion as much as anything, and um, I think I think my my article about mass is correct in terms of how the physics works. But um, I'm also, if someone can correct me on that, then that, that's also fine. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the the interesting thing about 
Mass, I think, is that did did you go to CAT? Did you do the MSc at CAT? I didn't. No. no. Okay. You just strike me as someone who might have done because <laughs> <laughs> so many look, people certainly. in this, so many people <laughs> in this 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 kind of field have done. Like I did. Yeah. And John Butler did, who you interviewed the other day, and quite often yeah. you'll meet someone who's in this field, and they'll be like. They'll meant, they'll be like, oh yeah, okay, you went to Cat, right? Okay, <laughs> and yeah. and and the, the 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 course there, I did the MSc in two thousand and seven to two thousand and ten, I think, um, mm-hmm. and it was it's great, it was really good, um, but just um, that as a way of kind of thinking about mass, the number of people who did their MSc MSc thesis on something to do with mass was vast was disproportionate to to mass's importance. I would say right oh, that's I mean. like, interesting there was, yeah. there was people were always really keen to do something on thermal mass yeah and um i don't think it's unimportant i just think it's not as important as people think it is yeah um if you're gonna have a I, list of hierarchies of you know, yeah things you should be yeah exactly at. yeah and and like to the extent i would say it's not worth chasing thermal mass in a building for the sake it's not worth choosing a material because it's got thermal mass like mm-hmm. in most cases, like there are a few exceptions and we can talk about them, but usually you want, you know, usually it might be a nice added extra, but chasing mass for masses sake, the return on the investment is not very good, both in terms of financial and also in terms of carbon. Cause yeah, obviously there are ways of doing thermal mass that are low mass, that are low embodied carbon, but there are also, ways of doing thermal mass that are extremely high in body carbon yes <laughs> um, yes indeed and yeah so and and i suppose i i am um, i mean i i'm a bit of a funny character really in terms of wh- how i came to be where i am and i suppose lots of people are like this but i didn't do arch- i'm not an architect i didn't do architecture i'm not an engineer i'm not an architectural technician i, I did mm-hmm. a degree in ecology and okay um, and so, you know, relevant, I've always been interested in like em- the environment and, and, and how we can reduce our impact on the environment. And, and I did a degree in ecology and didn't want to do, didn't want to continue in that in, in an academic sense, but partly because it's just really depressing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that's a bit brutal. A lot of the other reason was that I just wanted to go climbing all the time and I didn't really right. want to have a career at all. Yeah. So I did. I did like. I I cycled. Um, I cycled uh, rickshaws in Edinburgh for a couple of years and things like that. That was. That were just like. Okay. Would get me enough money to be able to go climbing and. Yeah. Yeah. So I was. Um, I was the same, but with snowboarding. So. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, exactly. I understand. Yeah. I think that's a healthy thing to do in your early twenties is to mm-hmm. not have a single clue what you want to do for your for your profession <laughs> and just get enough money to do the thing that you're interested in doing. Do the thing that yeah. you enjoy doing. Especially yeah. if it's a thing that you know later in life your 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 joints are gonna not let you do it, so yeah, yeah do yeah. it while you can so at, at the end of that, I kind of was like, well, I want to work in something to do with the environment because you know from I guess a teenager i was I was aware about climate change, and I kind of like, well, this is clearly the the important thing that we should be working on, and I'd like to work on something in that and um and I had a job in a, I did a few like placement work experience type things. And then I had a job in a recycling center going into schools and teaching kids about recycling. 
Okay. To try and like improve the recycling rates from schools. What, um, what sort of uh, year was this? This was like 2004 or 2005. Okay. And so absolutely nothing to do with buildings. Didn't know anything about buildings. Uh, but but I guess as a mount, as a mountaineer, as someone who like climbs in cold places, I was always quite interested. I was always really interested in how the how clothes functioned. Mm. I, I was kind of a bit sponsored as a climber, and I was a bit a bit involved in like developing gloves and uh, and clothing for for them for mountain equipment. Yeah, and so I was always interested in the like physics of of how how outdoor kit keeps you warm. Um, I remember having a I remember having an argument with someone who claimed that you'd stay warmer in a sleeping bag if you slept without any clothes on than if you slept with clothes on. I I, I believe the army tell you that. Yeah, because uh, I, I went it's on true. A, but again, I'm willing to be corrected. They what was the thing they said? Because uh, I went on a sort of bushcraft course when I was mm. in my early twenties, and they said, "Yeah, you you need to take your clothes off because otherwise you're insulating yourself from." the insulation of the sleeping bag, which, yeah. you know, That's I just like kind saying, of understood. Yeah. yeah, yeah and then, yeah. and then later on went, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Like if you've got a house that's got a hundred mil of insulation in the walls and you add internal wall insulation, it's like saying that'll make your house colder because it's insulating you from the insulation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the reason that the reason that this person gave was that, was that it reduced that, that it reduced the amount of air around you and the air, the air was what kept you warm. Mm. Um, and, and air is what keeps you warm in most insulation, but it keeps you warm because it's trapped. Yeah. Like air that's not trapped doesn't keep you warm. It'd be like, you know, if you wore, you know, those, um, those zorbing things. Yeah. Like where they put you in a big inflatable ball and you can roll around and bounce into people. Mm-hmm. It'd be like, if you slept in that when it was really cold, you'd get really cold, wouldn't you? Even though you have all this air around you, that's because the yeah. air is, is not trapped. It's, it can, it can convect and take heat away from your body really quickly. So yeah, like, yeah, if you, unless, unless you're, unless your sleeping bag is so tight that like wearing loads of insulation compresses the down or something, it's, I think it's nonsense. Like you, you mm. want to, if you're wearing dry, if it's dry clothes, you'll be warmer with them on or, or on top of you. Um, but yeah. in your bag or on top of your bag. But yeah, you, you, it, it, yeah. So I remember being really interested then in like the physics of how do you stay warm in an environment where, you know, that's essentially like a low energy building problem, isn't it? It's like minus 15 outside and my body is producing hundred Watts. How do I, how do I maintain 37.5 degrees or whatever your body temperature is? Yeah. Um, so I was I kind of always, always interested in that. And then I was doing this job in a recycling center, teaching kids about recycling and climate change. And then I saw this job advertised at this earthship in Fife. I was living in Edinburgh at the time, and there was um, this, this earthship in Fife that was running as a visitor center. And I thought, well, yeah, this sounds, this sounds great. This sounds really interesting. And I went to the interview, and I read up a bit about earthships and what they were, and, um, and was completely like, oh, that, that sounds amazing. That sounds great. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know if this is true of everyone, but there's certainly a, a tendency amongst kind of eco, I think this is a common route in that amongst eco builder types is they like the idea of self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. They like the idea that they can generate all their energy on site. They can deal with their waste on site. They can grow their food on site. And they're just like this little microcosm of 
independence. Sort and of the prep, prepping without the guns. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's some interesting like Venn diagrams you could do there, isn't there? Like between preppers and <laughs> and eco builders. <laughs> yeah. Um, and 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 um, so I was I was I was interested in that, and I guess it, like even as a kid, I remember wanting. I went. I remember like having this dream that you know I was like four or five or six. I was going to be a caveman. And uh, and I even had I had like a cave lined up, and uh, and I was going to like snare rabbits. And there was a spring on the hill. It was like the hill near our house. And there was a spring, yeah. and I was going to get water from there. I was going to snare rabbits. And and I think there was a girl in my class. She was going to come and be a cave woman with me. Um, I, d- I don't know if she was really up for it, but that was my <laughs> idea. <laughs> so so like you know that that kind of living di- doing everything for yourself is. It's kind of attractive, isn't it? It's, it's it definitely. Level. It's certainly um, romanticised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this idea of like a building that it needed no heating, it generated all its own electricity, it um, it recycled its water like four times or something. It captured it, captured all its own rainwater, and then you, you used it for like three different times or whatever. Grew load of it, load of its own food. Um, it sounded, you know, really seductive and so i i went to work there i didn't build it um in the in the i think in the last podcast you said that i was an earthship builder i didn't i wasn't involved in the building of it at all okay. it, it was already built when i went to work there um it was like a single room earthship with a toilet and it was like a visitor center so you people would come and you'd uh, either booked or they would just turn up um and you'd give them a tour and tell them about it and um and so i kind of ran it as as a visitor center and dick gave these tours and and things for maybe for like 18 months i think it was it was it was certainly over one whole winter maybe maybe two whole winters mm-hmm. um and and basically i became very interested in in how in the in the physics of it and and it didn't work very well basically um, right thermally uh, uh like it was it was cold in winter, like really cold. Um, Which should we should we start with them? Um, maybe sort of what what do they say about how yeah, an okay, yeah. should work? So, so so an Earthship is the kind of extreme end of of like the thermal mass is is great thing, and and so it's an Earth sheltered building that's made out of um, tires rammed with earth. So they they build the structural walls out of tires rammed with earth. So they're thermally massive. And then there's a bit of ver- bit of variety about whether you put insulation in the walls outside the mass or whether you don't have any insulation at all. Um, the Earthship in Fife had insulation around, so there was insulation between the the rammed earth tires and the ground. There was um, foam glass insulation, not okay. very much, I don't think. Um, interestingly, like nobody ever talked about U values, um, so you know that's a. <laughs> That's a red flag now, I would say. Yeah. Looking back. Um, <laughs> and um and uh and also like I, I I didn't see that go in, but from a from a performance point of view, I'm curious about like putting rigid sheets of foam glass around a curved wall would mm. be interesting to see. It sounds hard to detail, doesn't it? It sounds hard to do well. It has hard mm. to do in a way that doesn't have lots of thermal bypass. Yeah, I would say. Anyway, um, they didn't have an insulated floor, so there was 
it was it's a concept that that came from New Mexico in the southwest USA. Um, so very different climate, like desert, um, high altitude, loads of sun, like 300 days of sunshine a year. And um, mm-hmm. coincidentally, I'd actually lived in New Mexico for two years, a few years before. Right. That. Um, okay. And it hadn't had so anything to do knowledge. with those. Yeah, it hadn't had anything to do with airships, but had experienced the climate there. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, very sunny, very dry, not a lot of precipitation. Um, cold in winter, but really sunny. And you know, like minus ten and really sunny is is it's it's easier to deal with than from a designer's point of view than mm-hmm. like two degrees, <laughs> two degrees and drizzly. <laughs> And blowing a hoolie. <laughs> so, so um, yeah. So, so the idea is that you you have these big south-facing windows um, that are actually they're not vertical. They're they're designed to be tilted so that they're facing at right angles to the winter sun, so that you get maximum so, solar penetration. Yeah. And then you've got these thermally massive walls that are that are meant to absorb all this heat and um, and store it so that you don't need any heating. And um, and in New Mexico, I think they didn't have insulated floors. Um, and so when they bought the one to Scotland, they didn't put insulation in the floor there either. Um, and the idea there was that it was below the frost line. And so it didn't matter, which is a bit. Um, yeah, I remember having lots of discussions with people about this because I, I was kind of sat there and often it was not very, you know, there were days when it was busy with visitors, but there were often days when it not, was not busy. And you'd be like, well, I'm, I'm too cold. And it looked, it sounded good when I read about it. Why doesn't it work? And being real, you know, that's fascinating. It's a fascinating question. Like this was convincing enough for me to think that it worked and and it's not working. What, why is that? And that's you know, really fascinating. Um, and one of the things that seemed like a good candidate was that the floors weren't insulated. And I remember thinking about it and having this, having this argument with, with one of the people who built it and, one of the things that I learned working there that was very good is that people who have invested a huge amount of their own time and emotional energy are not unbiased observers <laughs> of reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, basically coming in and you can see like, it's incredibly, it's, it's quite a hostile thing to do, isn't it? To come in, you've not been involved in building it at all. You work there for a few months and you're like, it's too cold, you know, <laughs> like, well, you didn't build it. Go away kind of thing. Um, and and so, uh, yeah, I remember having discussions with people that where, where they would try and say, no, it's, it's not too cold. I think it's OK. And you'd be like, it was it was 11 degrees yesterday. I think I think that's too cold in in, in a living space, <laughs> you know, um, and uh and yes, yeah, so I remember having an argument with someone about 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 the floors and whether you had to insulate floors or not. And mm-hmm. they were saying, "Well, well, where's the heat going to go? Like, it, it, it's it's just going to go down, and where's it going to go?" And we were both arguing about it from the wrong perspective because I was saying, "Well, the ground's always ten degrees, so it's going to be an infinite heat sink." And they were saying, "Well, no, it's got to stop. Some the heat flow has got to stop some at some point, like." And and they they were kind of right in that like the ground is not a, not a very good insulator, but you've effectively got an infinite amount of ground, so you've got a, a U value of zero if you're only considering one dimension. Mm. If you're only considering the heat flowing downwards, then 
then once it's warmed up to temperature, there should be no heat loss. But that's not the way heat loss in floors works. It goes down and then it goes across and then it comes out. You know, it goes, it goes, it comes out around the sides of your building, basically. Uh-huh. And neither of us thought of that <laughs> at this time. <laughs> and, uh, Doesn't yeah, sound had, like if you had a thought of it, you'd be very popular. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so, so like thinking about things like that and, um, so I, so I thought a lot about, you know, why is this, why is this not working? And so one of the things was, was insulation under the floor. And, um, and then someone came in and, and said, Oh, have you heard about this MSC at CAT? And, um, and I thought, Oh, that sounds good. Um, and the other, the other thing I think is that now, now I'm kind of very much like, I, I quite suffer from imposter syndrome, like worrying that actually I don't know what I'm talking about. And, and that's quite, to a certain degree, that's quite healthy because you're constantly questioning, like, am I right about this or not? Mm-hmm. And, and you listen to what other people say and, and that's good. But I remember thinking about my MS, about the MSC. I remember thinking, well, do I really need to go and do an MSC? Like, I already know about how to make buildings not need any heating. This, this Earthship thing's great. And then, then like halfway through my MSC thinking, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe i didn't know as much as i thought i knew <laughs> so that's you know that's like dunning kruger yeah dunning kruger in my 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 in my own life like seeing dunning kruger effect go from being like someone who was clueless and thought they knew everything to someone who maybe knows quite a bit but still worries that they're wrong all the time <laughs> um, so so yeah so um don't know where I'm going with this. Um, so yeah, like basically a thermally massive building. Uh, there was some insulation, but the focus was was very much on on thermal mass and yeah, like glass and mass basically. Um, and um, I don't know how well they work in New Mexico because I've not been there. But in, I think my understanding is they do work well in that yeah, scenario. They might do, yeah. and they are yeah. designed for that scenario. Yeah. I mean, I would still be putting insulation under the floor, though. Yeah, you'd have thought so, yeah. Although I have heard recently, I've been reading things that have been saying that uh, if you're in a predominantly cooling, uh, you know, your demand mm. is cooling, then yeah, yeah. no insulation. Whereas if you're predominantly heating, then it should be insulation. Yeah, so for the floor, I, I think that maybe it works in New Mexico and it works because they've got so much sunshine that in, in mm. winter it's not a big challenge to stay warm yeah. if you've got a reasonably well-insulated building um, and loads of glass um, and and that the challenge is staying cool in the summer Yeah, and having an uninsulated floor is good for that. Um, I'd be surprised if um, I'd be surprised if they perform wet as well as a as a super insulated airtight building yeah with mvhr i'd be i mm. would be surprised but you know i, I, don't, I suppose in that i suppose in that scenario you'd have to have quite small windows because of the or clever or well shaded yeah yeah i mean what shading them is not not a difficult thing to do that's true um, so yeah very much like focusing on on thermal mass and glass there and then mm. um you know, as I've learned more about insulation and air tightness and um, and heat recovery, ventilation, and things, um, I I'm oft I was often struck by 
how much people would think thermal mass was really important. And it was often to do with this, with the idea that you talked about in that, in that podcast, where the evidence that it works really well is that um, the house doesn't cool down very quickly Mm -hmm. um, and that you, or that you open a window or a door and you come back an hour later and the house is still warm. And, um, and just coincidentally, there was another thread on Twitter like uh, last week where someone was saying um, that uh, it was an air testing guy I know actually who's um, who's really interesting to follow on Twitter. And he was saying um, that because houses are drafty, should we be putting more mass in them so that, so that they don't um, get cold so quickly? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same, it's the same misconception. I think, I think it's a, it's a confusion between an ability to maintain temperature, confusing that for an ability to hold on to heat. Yeah. Um, like when people talk about mass, they often talk about mass can hold heat and, and it's, it can't, that's not what it's doing. It's just, it's just resisting temperature change. Uh huh. If you see what I mean. Let's take an example, like your, your, the situation you said where you said, right, well, if I open all the windows for an hour, my house is still warm. Mm-hmm. And, and the, 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 the normal, the, 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 off, the thing that's often said about that is that that shows that it's held on to the heat. Yes. So when you open your windows, the, the rate of heat loss, open your windows or doors or whatever, the rate of heat loss depends on the, the temperature inside, the temperature outside and the rate of air change yeah and none of those things are influenced by mass mm-hmm. and in fact so it, so if you have a, a thermally lightweight building that's 20 degrees celsius and you've got a thermally heavyweight building that's 20 degrees celsius they're otherwise identical you open the same number of windows in them for 10 minutes and they're in yeah the same climate same yeah this is a magic world where mm-hmm. um, of course yeah where, yeah uh, you open the same windows for 10 minutes. You'll have the same air change rate. Um, and they both will have lost the same amount of heat because they'll have lost the same amount of air and it will have been, they will have changed over the same amount of air and they will have changed 20 degree air inside for zero degree air outside or whatever it is. And so they've lost the same amount of heat, but because the, the thermally massive building has lots of heat stored in the walls, it feels the same temperature as it was, or it hasn't cooled down very much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the thermally lightweight one, so let's say the thermally massive one has gone from 20 degrees to 19 degrees when you close the windows again. The thermally lightweight one has gone from 20 degrees to 16 degrees. You've then got to warm them up again using your heating system back up to 20 degrees. Because they've lost the same amount of heat, you have to add the same amount of heat to get back up to the same temperature as you were at before. So the amount of temperature change that they've seen is different, but the amount of heat loss that they've experienced is the same. Aha, uh-huh. I think so. <laughs> I think I'm with you. I mean, I've I've read and reread and reread your uh, your blog post. Yeah, I, I feel like I've I've come to sort of a, a better understanding because of it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. But actually, it's more complicated than that because <laughs> because <laughs> oh no, <laughs> it's, it's 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 because because the the rate of heat loss depends on the temperature inside and the temperature outside. So that's called Delta T at uh, the difference in temperature because of that. And because the 
the thermally heavyweight building stays warm for longer, it's actually lost more heat because because let's say for the first let's say you leave the windows open for an hour. Mm-hmm. The first five minutes, they're both losing heat at the same temperature, at the same rate, because they're both 20 degrees inside and they're both zero outside. After five minutes, the thermally light one might be at 19. The thermally heavyweight one's at 20 still, mm-hmm. or like 19.9 or whatever. And so the thermally heavyweight one is losing heat faster because it's warmer. Yeah? Okay. That makes sense. Uh, why is it losing heat? faster because it's warmer because it's because, because it's it got more on... to more to lose is that exactly yeah it's got more to lose and the difference in temperature between inside and outside is bigger uh-huh. and and it, you know the longer you leave that window the longer you leave it unheated with the windows open you know thermally lightweight building after a few hours it's it's the same temperature as outside it's lost all its heat it's not going to lose any more heat mm-hmm. the thermally massive building might carry on losing heat for days and at the end of that period, it's lost a lot more heat. And the 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 way to the the example to think about this is if you stayed in like um, intermittently occupied stone buildings. Um, we used to go and stay with. Uh, we had a friend who who owned a cottage in North Wales, and it would get used like maybe every other weekend. Mm. And you go there in winter and it would take a few days to get it comfortable with the fire raging. Yeah. And then it would be nice. And then presumably when we left, it would take a few days Stay to nice. cool down again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and so in that situation, the thermal mass is really working against you because you're, you're intermittently occupying it and you're having to put in loads of heat to get it up to temperature. Like a, a more, a more typical situation where you're living in the house and you're, more or less constantly heating it to 20 degrees Celsius, which sounds crazy if you're used to houses that are really leaky and you only heat them when you're in them. Yeah. But if you have a house that's, you know, very, very airtight, got MVHR, got insulation, then the difference in energy cost for keeping it 20 degrees all the time or keeping it 20 degrees when you're in it is, is really, really small. So, you know, that in that situation, Let's say we're, we're trying to we're trying to keep it at least twenty degrees all the time, and we look at it in in winter. And in that blog post, I, I kind of went through examples of where thermal mass helps and where it doesn't. Mm. And maybe if you want, I can just go through them, and then we can talk about more interesting things afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go for it. So, so yeah. Um, so imagine it's a day like today where I am. It's like two degrees outside but it's sunny and uh, I don't know because I've not finished insulating my house, but I suspect on a day like today, I'd still need the heating on to keep it at 20 degrees. And, and that, in that situation, the sun's shining through the windows, but it's not enough to keep the, to keep the house at 20 degrees on its own. So I need to put in a bit of extra heat from my heating system to keep the, keep the temperature at 20 degrees. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the way to think about this is that I've discovered in my floor, this is this massive block of concrete. Um, mostly I've got a suspended floor. And then in the middle of the floor, there's this enormous block of concrete that I've got to deal, got to deal with. And so, you know, imagine that I can lift that co- block of concrete off up and I can either throw it in the dump 
or I can keep it in my house and it will provide me with thermal mass. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that situation, the sun's shining through the window, the, but the heating's on because there's not enough heat gain from the sun to push us over the thermostat setting. In that situation, the thermal mass isn't doing anything. It's we're, we're losing heat as a function of how well insulated our building is and how airtight our building is and how efficient our our, vent, our heat recovery ventilation is. Mm-hmm. And the thermal mass isn't doing anything. It's it's um it's we're not, because the because the temperature of the building isn't changing. Yeah, the, the thermal mass only really comes into into play once the once the temperature starts changing in the building. Does that make yeah. sense? Yes. Yeah. So in that situation, it, the thermal mass it doesn't make any difference whether you've got thermal mass or not. Mm-hmm. Um, the second second scenario is when you've got um, it's winter, you've got heat losses that are higher than heat gains and your heating is off. So let's say you're away for the weekend, um, but it's winter. So it's like zero degrees outside, it's overcast. Um, so even though this building, when it's done, will be well insulated and airtight, it's losing more heat than it's gaining from the sun and from the appliances that are still in the house, like fridges and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... And again, we're, we're considering like a, a building that's super well insulated, super airtight um, with MVHR. And we've got two identical buildings. One's got this massive cube of concrete in the middle of it and the other one doesn't. Um, otherwise, they're identical. So one's thermally massive, one's thermally lightweight. So at the start of that period, at the start of the weekend, the temperatures are the same U values and the air change rates are the same. So the two buildings are losing heat at the same rate. Yeah. This is kind of equivalent to the, the example we did before where we were talking about you opening all your windows. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say after 24 hours, the internal temperature of the heavyweight building has dropped to 19 and the lightweight one has dropped to 18. And at that point, because the lightweight one is, is, is colder, it's losing heat slower than the other one than the thermally massive one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. Um, and you can look at that in terms of U values if you want, like a U value is watts per meter squared Kelvin. And the Kelvin is the, the difference in temperature between inside and outside. Um, and so at the end of that weekend, your lightweight building will be colder, but it will take less time and less energy to warm it up than your heavyweight building. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? The second scenario, the, the thermal mass has actually increased your heating demand rather than decreased it. So thermal mass can impact your heating demand, but it doesn't always decrease your heating demand. Sometimes yeah. it can it can increase it. Um, so, um, so scenario three, I said, was heat gains are higher than heat losses. So let's say you've got like a really sunny day or loads of people around for a party and you've got um you've got so so your heat gains are higher than your heat losses which means that your heating system can come off so you're at 20 degrees then your heat gains started exceeding your heat losses the building started getting warmer the heating switched off and in that situation the um the thermal mass will will mean that the heating that the that the temperature in the building um goes up less than in the lightweight building does that make sense? Yeah. And that has two impacts. So it might mean that you can, um, 
it, it might mean like let's say we have a few hours of this uh, internal gains being higher uh, gains being higher than losses situation and um after a few hours the lightweight building might be 23 degrees and the heavyweight building might be 21 degrees and at that point because the lightweight building is hotter it's losing heat at a higher rate that makes sense mm-hmm. and that is exacerbated even if 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 it gets so hot that you have to start open, opening the windows in the lightweight building to dump heat and you don't have to start opening the windows in the heavyweight building to dump heat then you're losing much more heat in the lightweight building than you are in the heavyweight building and when everyone goes home from the party that heat will then keep your building the heavyweight building warm for longer and you won't have to turn the heating on so soon We'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at the Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. So that's the scenario, the one where mass is doing that thing that we think it's doing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it do, in that, in that situation, it does, um, it can reduce your heat demand and, and it mm-hmm. does reduce, typically it reduces your heat demand a little bit. Um, but compared to, super insulation and air tightness it, the impact is usually relatively small right and um and so yeah c- compared to like the amount of attention it gets from people who are interested in this sort of thing I mm-hmm. think it's um it's relatively small so yeah in that situation it does it does have a an impact um and then the other thing that people often think about and this is kind of what earthships were trying to do is trying to capture the heat capture the heat from the sun in the summer and store it for the winter and this yeah. is uh that's kind of interseasonal interseasonal that's what you call it yeah. yeah yeah and that um is a really kind of seductive idea but it the the quantities of mass involved are, are huge they're really really you need a lot of mass to do that what what sort of size are we talking i don't know like concrete floors and concrete in your walls and i don't know i haven't sat down and done the maths actually on that but i think i think the pass institute did some there's some some stuff on passipedia about it and i kind of got got to the point with that where i just thought well we know that it's possible to make a house that only needs 15 kilowatt hours per meter squared of heating per year Mm -hmm. without using lots of thermal mass so the amount you can improve on that, you know, even if even if adding all of that mass meant that you needed no heating whatsoever, that's a, a, a small improvement, yeah. Because because you're going from past house standard, which is, you know, for a typical size house, is about 100 pounds a year of heating, yeah, to keep it 20 degrees all the time, you know, which is radically different from how I heat my house because I can't because I'm because I'm worried about climate change, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, I spend like, like before we re- started retrofitting our house, we were spending like 500 pounds a year on heating oil. 
but it was miserable, <laughs> miserable and cold, you know? Yeah. To heat it to, so, so yeah, we're only going to save 400 pounds a year in heating bills, but it's going to be radically nicer to live in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, lots of people are in that, in a similar situation to that, I think. So, so yeah, so the fact that you can make a, a passive house building without needing lots of mass means that you know you're only making a marginal improvement to go from 15 kilowatt hours per meter squared a year to zero so even if adding loads of mass did that improvement for you the payback in terms of money and in terms of embodied carbon would be poor i would say i mean the i did notice that in your your example you talked about uh concrete being mass yeah i mean i obviously think of mass as earth yeah yeah Um, sure and you know which has a radically different uh, embodied carbon. Certainly. It, it certainly does, but it's still it's still a lot of work and potentially money to add mass. Mm-hmm. Unless unless it, unless you, unless the material you choose to build, and you're choosing it because of its thermal performance in terms of U value, and its environmental impact in terms of embodied carbon and other stuff, and its air tightness benefits, those are probably the three things you should be thinking about. If Coincidentally, it's also low, also high mass. Then happy days, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I think choosing it because it's high mass over other things is probably not the way to go. For example, rammed earth walls or or cob walls. They're they're great, but they're they're quite high U value. You can't. It's difficult to get the same low U values. So we're we're saying they've got a cob wall has very little insulation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's an. In, I did. I, I did a bit of reading on about cobage after your podcast oh, yeah. last week, and it's interesting because th- what they claim is that because the embodied carbon is so low, mm. that over a lifetime of the building, it's still it's it's lower carbon than building to passive house. Yeah, and that's that's interest an interesting argument. I suspect that because we can build super insulated buildings without needing high carbon materials. Yeah, I suspect I suspect the data point they have for passive house is it's like a big concrete and foam. Yeah, it's not. It's probably not a passive house where they're trying to also address embodied carbon. Yeah, and you know if you compared it to like iJoist and cellulose or. Uh, Eco Cocon, yeah. yeah. Like George's, George's Like George's house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um you know, George's house is pretty low carbon. Mm. And the the thing that's not low carbon about it is the, is the floor slab. Right. And and that's that's probably the kind of really interesting cutting edge thing that we need to work out how to do is to do super insulated low carbon ground floors. Yeah. But I don't know, but I would be surprised if the answer to what we should be building is accepting very poor U values for the fact that the embodied carbon is super low. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because I do, because yeah. because thermal performance is so important. Yeah. Those things they, they, those things they get very interesting but very confusing very quickly. And and things like like to, looking at lifetime carbon it becomes a bit irrelevant when, when you, if you assume that the grid is going to decarbonize and mm. that you're going to provide your heating with electric heat pumps. Yes. Um, it, and by that analysis, in 20 years' time, it doesn't matter how much heating you need 
because it's going to be zero carbon or close to zero carbon anyway. Yeah. But the reality is that there's a chicken and egg situation because in order to get to a zero carbon grid and everyone heating their homes with electricity, we need to re- reduce demand. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like, yeah, the, 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 the lifetime carbon impact becomes like a poor metric for, for how to assess whether a building's good or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. I kind of, from where I started of, of being really interested in earthships to where I am now, where I don't, I don't think that's the way that we should be building houses at all. Um, yeah, it is. It is interesting. I think I think I learned a lot working there um, about <laughs> about how yeah about how buildings work, but also about how people um, like I I got into discussions with the kind of with the head of Earthships about about whether they you know how we should be improving it. And As it's in Michael of, Reynolds. Yeah, yeah. I remember okay. an email correspondence between me and my boss at, at the Earthship and Fife, and him. And I was saying, well, I think at the time there was there was a potential that someone was going to build another one hmm. in the UK, in Scotland, and 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 I was saying, well, maybe we should try insulating the floor on this one and see whether it works better. And and he was really hostile. And and at one point he said, like. Um, how many earthships has as built around the world and how many have I built? And, you know, like, you know, what does he know kind of thing, which was a fair point. I was like a 24 year old person yeah. asking questions, but I was asking questions that were actually pretty valid because I was sat in a 12 degree office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about, you know, I was really interested in making it work basically. But also that, I, that, um, that when I discovered computer, that I did, when I discovered that you could simulate building performance in a computer, it's like, oh, right. So you don't have to build a building every time you have a question about whether you should do something differently. Like, yeah. Like, should we insulate this floor? Oh, well, we could spend three years building another building, or we could just look at it in a computer and it'll tell us whether we should insulate the floor or not. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I kind of got I got really into simulation of buildings from that, and that, that kind of went on, led on to my PhD and things like that, right. um, was, in, was in, in building energy simulation and yeah so it kind of it's interesting where you start and where you end up um, yes um yeah i don't know how what's your tiny house in terms of what you're doing in terms of are you going to plug into the grid and well so uh i'm off grid uh so in terms of energy it is i'm just specking the uh the solar system at the moment yeah uh it does have underfloor heating uh installed but that was kind of future proofing you know i know that the blog burner you can see behind me isn't the best for for me or the environment yeah um so i wanted to future proof it in terms of of sort of you know uh low carbon or no carbon uh electricity or heating um yeah but it will be completely off-grid you know water catchment uh kind of I, i looked quite heavily at uh, the living building challenge as a kind of best practice. And I hadn't really even considered rainwater collection as a, a necessary thing. I just Mm. thought, you know, we've got taps that is right there. Yeah. Um, So that was an interesting kind of development. 
Um, and then as it happens where I'm actually going to park this house first, I say first because it is, you know, it's a movable thing. So it's, it's on um, a trailer, is it? How does it work? It is. Yes. Right. Yeah. On a flatbed. Okay. Um, but it is permanently on a flatbed. Permanently on a flatbed. Yes. Right. Okay. Although, I mean, yeah. technically I could, I could remove it. I could unbolt it, but right. Right. Um, yes. They, it, for, for the sake of, uh, planning and, and all the sort of things that I sidestep by having it on wheels. Right. Um, yeah. that's why it's, why it's that. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm quite aware that maybe in the future I might end up parking somewhere that isn't in the middle of the woods. Mm. And so, yeah, it would plug in at that point. Yeah. So, so where you are at the moment, it makes sense to be off grid because you're miles away from a grid connection. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, um, that's the sort of way that that's my take on it now is that, that you, you shouldn't try and be off grid if you're mm. near a grid. Like yeah. it doesn't make sense because you have to overspec your PV and your batteries. You're specking it for the, for the, the coldest, darkest days of the year. And yeah. then for, you know, for 10 months of the year, you've got so much extra power. You don't know what to do with it. And and that kind of the earthship idea was that, that you're completely off grid. Um, and, and I, you know, I thought that was great at the time. Um, mm. And it's interesting how how that um, that idea of that that romantic idea of being self sufficient percolates down, and and it, I think it still has um, an impact that is sometimes negative on people's design aspirations. So, um, for example, like they might not be trying to be off grid, but they might be saying, well, we want, but we want to make sure that we're generating as much electricity as we're using over the course of the year. And that's just like, if you've got a site that's got good PV potential, put some PV on, but design your building to need as little energy as possible. And, and accept that we live in a, we live with a grid that is full of, big generation sources like offshore wind and mm-hmm. and that's a good thing <laughs> um and 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 if it means that so i had had a situation where the logic for going with a wood burner was that it would make it easier to go it make it easier for them to to see that that their building was so, like not self-sufficient because it was grid connected but that they would feel like they were generating as much energy as they're using because they were burning woods like wood from local forests and and they were generating PV that would cover all of their electricity use and hmm. I think that that um, yeah I think it's it leads to potentially suboptimal outcomes environmentally um, yeah. I would say that you know for that building that they should generate as much PV, PV as makes sense to generate. And um, yeah, I think the, the the idea of net zero for buildings, lots of other people have said this, but I don't think it's a good idea for, I don't think it's a good target for buildings okay. because it leads you down all sorts of bad design choices. Like the, the most obvious one is that it, it, you can't build a net zero um four-story tenement block because you haven't got enough roof space for your pv but a four-story tenement block is a great way of housing people with minimal energy demand Mm -hmm. and 
densely enough that they can cycle and walk and take public transport to places. Um, and yeah, we should. We I think it it makes sense to to have minimal energy demand and then generate electricity where it makes sense to generate electricity. And yes, so not think of things think, as as isolated units. Yeah, um, and I think that some of the low energy building, environmental building, some of that, some of where people came from to arrive there, like, including me, is from a background where the idea was was self-sufficiency and that was the mm. romantic ideal yeah i think it's it's useful to kind of re-examine those those choices those ideas and whether they make sense um, that's interesting because um i mean something i i realized or someone said to me rather uh was this idea of, sort of self-sufficiency in terms of growing your own food mm. and everyone's got this ideal you know they'll grow all their own food but actually the realism is that at it would be better to be in a community where everyone grows a bit of one thing and they share. Yeah. Mm. And, and it sort of seems like that's probably the same for, for energy production. Uh, you know, thinking of things on community scale rather than, you know, like we, we have these two, two opposite ends where we think national grid or we mm. think individual house and nothing in between. And actually mm. kind of community seems like you would uh you would solve sort of both of those problems yeah yeah but even i mean like with renewable energy you get massive benefits in terms of resilience if you can have geographic spread mm-hmm. because um you know in terms of wind it's you're less likely to have low wind in two geo- geographically dis- diverse places right yeah less likely to have you know the, the more the bigger your grid in terms of the bigger your spread of sources of energy, the more resilient the system can be. Sure, um, yeah. And I think that's yeah, that's the way things are heading in terms of big offshore wind farms. Um, mm. And that's a counter to some of what what we all grew up reading about, small is beautiful and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it, it makes sense in terms of building a system that's as resilient as possible for as low cost as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think that com- the community level is very important as well, because it's, it's good. At, it's good to have like buy-in from people. It's good for them to understand where their energy comes from. Um, and, and to become energy literate. I think that's, that's really useful, but yeah, I think, and it's easier to do it at a, at a national level than it is at a community level, unless you're, unless you're very rural. I, so um to to sort of spin back to to mass for a second uh mm. i think what i realized well so so i did all my training in the states well my initial training in the states and i think yeah you know that that's very much influenced my my thinking and i think a lot of it this mass thing is more about ease than it is about uh sustainability or efficiency probably the right word Mm. um and you know i think a lot of places out in the states had a wood burner or had something like that yeah and and therefore they were if they had a high mass or you know building with mass in that they could heat up they could burn one big fire a day yeah and then it'd be you know they'd be warm as opposed to if it was very lightweight and you know they maybe have to have a couple of little 
well, you know, if it was a very efficient building, they wouldn't, of course. Have to yeah, yeah, yeah. Come. yeah. But, you know, the, the sort of thought process is that. Um, yeah, and so that that's sort of where I've got to in, in my thinking is that potentially easier, but mm. not, but that doesn't make it better as often easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think if you've got, um, you know, in, in a low energy house, it's hard to have, a wood burner that's low enough output mm. um and so having mass in that situation will will make it um will potentially make it easier but it's not it's not without risks i think like i've got um i have a passive house project at the moment where the the client wants to have a masonry stove oh yeah um and i've gone down so, that rabbit hole yeah <laughs> <laughs> very seductive yeah and so um the risk there, I think, is that you um, you have a cold day, you light your masonry stove for an hour or whatever it is, um, and then and you heat up all your masonry, and then the next day it's sunny and you get too hot mm. because your stove is still kicking out um, yeah kicking out heat and and you know that that um, there's a there's a ten there's a a feeling amongst quite a lot of people in passive house circles that underfloor heating in passive houses is difficult to do well oh, because really? yeah because you've got this situation where like 8 a.m it might be cold so your heating comes on and then because the 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 amount of adi- the amount of additional heat gain you need in order to switch your heating off is so small that 10 a.m the sun comes through your windows heating switches off but because the because the um underfloor heating is a slow response system it's, it's kind of got mass built into it hasn't it yeah you've you've already got a few kilowatt hours in the pipeline that is going to be released into your house you can't do anything about it because it's already switched off but you mm-hmm. know the the floor is already at, at that temperature and it's going to release that as it cools so you're you're talking ma- massive uh you know the hot water pipes in use some kind of mass as opposed to you know electric cables under yeah hot water pipes so they can work with heat pumps um mm. like even just in a lightweight screen that's that's a slower response system than the radiators yeah um so so when you switch the heating off you've still committed to a to a to a sum of heat that is going to arrive in the next few hours yeah um and i'm i'm thinking like at the moment we're living in, we've got an Airbnb cabin in our front front garden, which we're living in while we, while I do the house and that's got underfloor heating and it's just electric resistance underfloor heating. So it's, it's a bit different, but I don't think there's any mass there and it's a very slow response system, you know, like right. it gets, it, it gets comfortable in the evening, but it's when you turn it on in the morning, it's not comfortable for quite a long time. Mm. Um, and partly that's because it's these individual mats with resistant cables in them and there aren't enough individual mat sorry they the i think they're broken lots of them are broken right okay and so not enough of them heat up you can work out where they are because the cat sits on them um <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um but uh so so it, partly it doesn't heat up because it's not powerful enough it doesn't heat up fast because it's not powerful enough but i think also it's i i get the feeling it's a slower response system than than a than a than a radiator one Right. Um, but yeah, you, I, I don't know. Maybe if you spoke to a, 
an HVAC specialist, and yeah, a heating engineer, they they could say, well, I can I can design you a underfloor heating system that is able to respond as similar to similar speed to a radiator system. I don't know, but mm. certainly the way they're often designed is that they're quite slow response systems. So in in that sense, you know, you've got you've got a, a building that you essentially want to be able to turn the heating on and off really you well you want to be able to turn it off quite quickly and you can't do that um, and and by building a masonry stove you've got an extreme example of that basically um, uh, do you think i mean the the times when you know i find myself naturally still you know defending mass yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's well and truly you know in me uh yeah. I mean, the times when it's going to be cold enough that you want the heat and then the next day is warm enough that it would be too hot. Do you think they would be so few and far between that, you you know, having to wear a T-shirt one day because it's, you know, you've slightly over overcooked it. Mm. Do you think that would be such a terrible thing? Oh, I see what you mean. You've overcooked the, the you've put too much heat into your thermal mass. Um, it's probably not terrible, but it'll increase your energy energy use. Yeah. 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 So if you're looking um, at it with the aim of of being as efficient as possible using it. Yeah. And you know, if you're if you're spending lots of effort on trying to make your house really comfortable, hmm. then you want it to be as comfortable as possible. You don't want to think well, I'm a bit too warm today. Yeah. Um so it'll be interesting I and mean, they they're pretty they're pretty set on doing it. I've I've been I've been very upfront about thinking that I that I don't think it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um You sent them the so, blog, did you? Uh, no, I sent lots of stuff about wood burning. Ah, Not, yeah, okay, I should have sent yeah. them the blog. Yeah, um, but yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. How, yeah, it's like a little experiment how it'll um, whether it'll work. Okay. Um, yeah. So I've got a question. It's about insulation with mass mm. because there's a thing. Anecdotally, hempcrete houses are people claim that they outperform their u value yeah because there's this mass that's you know entwined in the the insulation yeah and that makes it i, I mean that just kind of i can't quite separate my brain i yeah. don't really understand it i have the same I have the same reaction <laughs> I, I think um i think exceptional claims require exceptional evidence yeah and i don't maybe my physics is lacking i don't understand why it would make that much difference mm. basically. Um, but I haven't looked into it in very much detail. There's some, there's some stuff about hempcrete where it's, it's not just the mass. It's also to do with the hydrothermal performance. So the okay. way that it buffers moisture and the idea that when the moisture condenses in the structure, it releases heat. And then when it evaporates, it absorbs heat okay which sounds like you don't want it to be condensing in your structure so i don't know if i've misunderstood what they mean there but yeah and it, and if it is condensing in your structure it'll be condensing quite far out because mm. it has to be cold for it to condense yeah i am i'm I'm, I'm quite skeptical of the idea that it outperforms its u value because because of its thermal mass yeah um because you you can account for, you know, you, you can account for thermal mass in, not in, in PHPP, which is the passive house 
um, modeling software, you can't account for it accurately. It, you can say how thermally massive the building is, and it applies what I understand is a bit of a fudge factor. Right. Um, that Because it's not a dynamic simulation and uh, it's, a, it, it's a steady state simulation. It assumes for January, it assumes that the, the temperature is, let's say, three degrees all the time because that's the average temperature mm-hmm. and that it's 20 degrees all the time inside. And so it works out how much heat you've lost through your walls based on the U value. Um, and in, in order to accurately assess the impact of mass, you need to have a dynamic simulation where instead of looking at it for a whole month, it's looking at it each time step and that might be five minutes or it might be a minute or 30 seconds or whatever and it's saying right what what heat gains are happening in this in this time step and what heat losses are happening and at Mm -hmm. the end of the time step are is my space warmer or colder than it was before and and in those simulations you can take into account the effect of thermal mass um and what you see i've not done it with hempcrete but for example i've done it with like uh, simulating a wall that's thermally massive concrete with external insulation outside it, yeah, and and it it performs a bit better than than the same U value without the thermal mass, but it's not a lot better. Um, it's not it's not a big a big improvement usually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I wonder whether I, I would need to read about Hemp Creek some more, but. There are things that might. There are other things that might explain it. Like maybe it's easier to build. Like, do they mean that it loses less heat than it U, its U value suggests, or do they mean that when you build a hempcrete building, it performs better than another building that you've built with other materials with a similar U value? And if it's the latter, then it might be because you can build the way you build hempcrete tends to be in a way that doesn't lead you down lots of risks for um the performance gap so like the classic risk is that you've got lots of gaps in your insulation Mm. and so although on paper you've got this super low conductivity insulation and it's 200 or 300 mil thick and your u value is really low and that looks great but if you've got like anything well the rule of thumb is any gap bigger than three millimeters makes a big impact on your u value performance on Mm. the, the the real world u value performance and because hempcrete, you're you're plastering it on. You're not going to have gaps like you do if you were insulating with, you know, rigid foam insulation, for example. Yeah. And so maybe some of maybe that 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 in situ performance being really good is more to do with it being a you know mm. it being possible to absorb ab- avoid the performance gap. The anecdotal uh, thing that I'm thinking of, they said that the the built building performed better than it was mod you know the modeling said and so therefore right. you know, the energy demand was smaller mm. um but i suppose that's you know there's all sorts of factors that could have caused that yeah yeah and the other thing is air tightness like if you're building with hempcrete is it inherently quite airtight it's quite open isn't it i think yeah it's the plaster that's for the airtightness in a in a hempcrete yeah but that's what i mean is that you are plastering with hempcrete oh yes generally so it tends to be quite an an airtight construction Mm. um yeah it's interesting i i i'm skeptical but i'm happy to be convinced if there is if if there is a reason there but um yeah i'd be surprised if if 
if thermal mass makes a big difference there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, I mean, yes. you did say it was uh, in your, your blog, you said that it was, there is a little bit of an improvement, but it's something like a, a fiver a year or something. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the, the, I've done some dynamic simulations with mass and I've also done some PHPP things where you, you take a box and say, well, not, you don't take a box. You get put a number in for how thermally massive your building is. Hmm. And it, it, I think applies a, a, a fudge factor, which is, it, I think it's been based on dynamic simulations that they've then they've done enough dynamic simulations that they can say, oh, well, thermal mass tends to have this yeah. this degree of impact. Um, and actually, the the my work for this for for this part of Scotland suggested that um, that PHP actually overestimated the impact of the improvement from thermal mass. Um, ah. So, uh, but yeah, it, it was small. It was small. So. Yeah, I'd be surprised if if this kind of U-value outperforming its U-value because of the thermal mass thing was was stood up to scrutiny. But I haven't looked at it in detail. But there are instances where it's where it is really where it does make a difference in terms of summer performance. Mm. And and those are often people often think about that in terms of thermal mass in the building meaning that the building doesn't get too hot. But actually the, the one where it makes a big difference is, is the, is the, in the walls and the roof, if they're getting direct sunlight, if you've got, if you've got very lightweight insulation, then if the sun is shining on black tiles, they can get that's that space underneath your tiles can get really hot, like 50 or 60 degrees. Mm-hmm. And so you get a wave, even though the, the roof is well insulated, you get a wave of heat coming through that insulation and that wave of heat takes much longer to arrive in, for example, um, a wood fiber board insulated roof. And and when it arrives, it arrives at a time of day where you can open the windows and it's started to re-radiate to space rather than to yeah. um, carry on radiating into your house. So I think it does make a, a, a noticeable difference there. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, thank you, Ez. That was fantastic. Uh, so much geeky goodness. There is actually a whole nother episode with Ez where we chat through his retrofit of his own house that he briefly mentioned in this episode. Um, I will get that one out soon. 
What do I want to say? Oh, yes. So that question at the end about hempcrete outperforming what it's supposed to do has actually posted a, a question on uh, on Twitter about that uh, and got a fascinating response from Craig White, which talks about uh, he he gives a link to uh, a paper written by Pete Walker and Mike Lawrence of the University of Bath. And it's all about the hydrothermal po- properties, including the absorption and desorption of moisture. Uh, and he says there is an energy exchange required to enable absorption and desorption of moisture. And the U values determined by steady state thermal flow cannot reflect phase shift effect. So if you understand what that means, then you'll probably want to check out the link in the show notes. A reminder that uh, the link to Ez's article is in the show notes. Uh, do have a read uh, if some of what was talked about didn't make too much sense do let me know what you think of this episode uh there will be discussions in the building sustainability community facebook group uh you can ask any questions there and i will feed back and get the answers for you do check out ez on twitter link in the show notes and if you get a chance do please share this podcast with whoever you can uh, I notice a massive spike in uh, in downloads when people share an episode or they share just the podcast and say something nice about it. Um, so you can help me out very easily just by giving it a share in whatever networks you have. So appreciate that. Hope everyone's well. All the best. Bye bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.